Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. You know, I think we're going to be learning quite a bit on building, scaling, you know, all the above that we like to hear. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sasha Orlov. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's go. So so give us a little of a walk through memory lane, Sasha. How was life uh, growing up? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I would say it's been a, a fun journey so far, and it feels like I'm just getting started in my ability to be a successful founder and, uh, uh, and, and create value. So it, it's been fun. I grew up uh, all over the place, but mostly here in California. Uh, I've had the fortune of growing up in the Bay Area when I was younger, and so you're just surrounded by all the new technology waves and everything. Lived in San Diego for a bit. Uh, went to college and, uh, and had a couple jobs, and here I am. So what, what got you into math, out of all things, Sasha? Yeah, you know, I, I fought it a lot as a child. I, I thought math was embarrassing. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher or a professor, uh, but it was one of those things that uh, I aced the math on the SATs, uh, went in and took my general education undergrad and got A's on all of my math classes, uh, I just found it kind of boring and uh, not really relevant to the rest of life. And then I found applied math, where you could actually take math and apply it towards real world business situations. And then all of a sudden, I fell in love. Now, in your case, I mean, you've, um, you know, you traveled the world quite a bit, you know, and, uh, you know, you studied in Cambridge, in also in San Sebastian. I mean, you, you, you've been, you know, quite around, you know, so I guess, Having that exposure to the rest of the world, how do you think that opened the way that you think about things? Yeah, it's one of those things where when you, I think when you grow up, you live your own life and you think that's the experiences that everybody has. Uh, and when you live in the Bay Area, you're probably insulated in even more of a bubble than the rest of the world. So you start traveling around the world and seeing how different people live and operate. So studied in Cambridge University because I wanted to see the core of where economics was founded and studied in San Sebastian because I wanted to see art and the culture of Europe. I lived in uh, Central America and Honduras and Mexico for three years uh, working on rural poverty, then lived in DC and New York and San Diego and Oakland and San Francisco. You just get a different perspective. I think all of that just helps you open your eyes to bigger and bigger opportunities as an entrepreneur. Now for you, I mean, you, you kept coming back. I mean, you, you, you went back there to San Francisco. So what do you think, you know, like kept you coming back there and, and, and why? One of my favorite things about the Bay Area is it's a constant focus on tomorrow. What could be? There's just a sense walking around the streets and talking with venture capitalists, going to coffee shops and seeing entrepreneurs pitching VCs all over there's just an energy and excitement that makes you feel like it's possible. And being a founder, as you know, and everybody else, I think it's a kind of a mix of confidence and imposter syndromes. And so how do you make that balance feel like an enabling factor? And I think part of the magic of San Francisco is this feeling of possibility uh, and uh, what, what can you do tomorrow, which 
which is just energizing. So, I mean, for you, it took um, it took a little bit, you know, to to go at it, you know, with a company of your own. You know, I mean, you you were working a little bit for other companies, and as you were saying, you were trying traveling to Honduras, and but it took a little bit to really, you know, get into the whole YC and starting your own thing, you know, type of stuff. So, so what do you think pushed you over the edge? I, uh, you know, I think I, if we take a, a bit of a step back, I read a book after 9-11, uh, which uh, living here in the Bay Area was devastating everywhere. But but it makes you really kind of rethink priorities. Around the same time, I read a book called Banker to the Poor by Muhammad Yunus, who would later go win the Nobel Peace Prize. And he started this idea of microfinance, so it's small loans and savings and education as a tool to fight rural poverty. and you really get to see the possibility of uh, how these overlapping things can help empower somebody to, to be even more successful. And then I was uh, went to the World Bank to work for the consultative group to assist the poor uh, while I was getting my MBA at Georgetown, and then went to New York to work in a rotational program at Citigroup that ended up being in the venture capital team. So Citi started the first venture capital group in uh, the first bank um, sort of strategic investing arm in Palo Alto. And so I had an opportunity to come back to the Bay Area as part of the rotational program. And you just see how exciting it is to be an entrepreneur, because my job was to find great ideas and fund entrepreneurs. They're the passion and the capital's the fuel. And it was just, it was exciting. But at the same time, you meet a bunch of people who are just everyday people. There's always a sort of lore of CEOs and entrepreneurs that there's something really magical about them. And, and there is to some degree, uh, it's a bit of lunacy and craziness, but at the same time, it's just exciting and you, you see uh, it's possible. And then when you see it's possible, it can't get you more excited to kind of look for, look for ideas. I got really excited about an idea that I couldn't find the right combination of product and entrepreneur. And I ended up randomly on a, on a just kind of a whim on my way to the airport, stopping by my brother's house, opening up a computer and applying to Y Combinator. And we ended up getting in. Uh, and it was a really exciting time to be able to build one of the first core underwriting and um, sort of financial services experiences on the mobile phone when the smartphones first came out. And we created a couple companies off of that technology and uh, they hit product market fit. We raised a bunch of capital and it just sort of shows you what's possible. And what is that process like? Because, I mean, typically the people that come on the show, you know, they develop like one platform or a product and... You know, developing a technology and applying it to different, you know, channels or different products is not the typical thing that the that folks here on the show, you know, have to share in terms of a journey, you know, with with a company that that they've done in the past. So I guess, how is that possible? How do you go about first building a technology, and then once you are clear on what that looks like, how do you, you know, come to the decision? Hey, you know, maybe we apply this to multiple things at the same time, because I mean, doing a startup on its own is already difficult. You know, doing <laughs> doing it twice at the same time is absolutely nuts. So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I think it's a company. It's a good question. Uh, easier probably to evaluate in hindsight now uh, in thinking about it than going forward. There's three things that I think stand out. One is when you start to become so obsessed with an idea you try and battle test it and you try and share it with as many people as possible and you try and poke holes. What is the way that this could work and what, what is the way this wouldn't work? And, um, and then the second is you have to have an incredible team uh, that can pull this off. 
And so hiring is really important. So can you recruit a couple people and get them excited enough that they're willing to quit their jobs, work for no money or very little money for an indefinite period of time in the hope of building something? And then the third is, can you, not every business, some businesses you should self-fund, some you should bootstrap, and some you should raise money from venture capitalists. In this case, can you reasonably understand a path in which this could generate a hundred million of revenue or a billion of revenue along the way. And when you can't think of a reason why all of those things don't exist, to me, that was the reason it should exist. That's probably again my back background, like thinking about risk, is that if I can't find a way to say no, and I get so excited about the yes, I, I feel like I, I don't have a choice. I have to do it. So then what was the technology? And then how do you guys think about, you know, implementing it to those two different companies that you guys end up, you know, building up? In the last, I think there's a lot of themes actually between what we built with LendUp and Mission Lane and what we're doing here with Puzzle is one of the most amazing thing. Well, I guess we we'll take a step back. I think first there's kind of two mindsets of an entrepreneur. There's this creative genius entrepreneur that can create something that doesn't exist. Maybe that's the Steve Jobs or the Jack Dorseys of the world, people that can create something that doesn't exist. And then there's other entrepreneurs who just see this opportunity. Can you apply this technology to this industry? And if you have kind of an understanding of those two things together, then can you build a big business? Can it be defensible? Can you find a market entry? Uh, are people willing to pay you for it? I'm the latter. I'm definitely not sort of this visionary. I can create something that doesn't exist. So if we think about the place where my skill set relies, it's um, I've had a, a, a big, diverse set of experience. Startups, multinationals, banks, government, uh, nonprofits. And so that helped give me a pretty broad perspective, as you mentioned, across a lot of different countries, a lot of different industries. And then sitting here in Silicon Valley is like, what are the new technologies that are emerging? All right, if we take that back to 2010, what was happening? We had three big inflection points that were happening. One was we had the subprime mortgage crisis, which meant the government was going to completely change the laws to how banks could operate. Uh, and effectively, what was going to happen is they were going to exclude about half of the country from core financial services for some period of time. The second, which is hard to think about now, is we were just kind of commercializing the cloud. The cloud was a big thing. You could actually do massive processing like machine learning in like not on a, a computer and smartphones. And I still think that when I look back, one of the biggest arguments was, is everybody going to have a smartphone or is it just going to be for super wealthy people along the way? It's hard to think about the cloud and smartphones being a thing back then. But you have all those three trends happening at the same time. And so we thought, well, God, if we had a smartphone, we could reach everybody. If we could process in the cloud, we could do machine learning and we could use more data to help underwrite people. And we had half of the country was going to be excluded from financial services. And so we decided, could we build like a fraud and underwriting technology on a mobile phone that took advantage of some of the native features of a smartphone? And then we just tried to apply that towards a lot of different industries. And that ended up working really well. I still think it's a major competitive advantage um, as banks sort of still are slow to invest in, in technology. So then talk to us about talk to us about then lend up and Mission Lane. I mean we'll t we'll get into puzzle just in a little bit, but I want to talk about, you know, those two companies, you know, what what were the business models how, how how did the business model, you know, ended up shaping up? You know, how were you guys, you know, making money on each? Uh and uh, and obviously, you know, like how did you go about building the teams around them? Yeah. The first concept was the simplest version. We kind of took what was one of the most hated financial products on the market, payday lending. And how do we reinvent it and turn it into a force for good? And so we thought, how do we design a product 
that can help people have an opportunity to build their credit score, to learn about better financial education, and to save money. Teach them the behaviors that make them have a, a basically a higher credit score or a lower risk, and then use that to lower costs and save them money over time. And so we did that. So we built the LendUp Ladder. Um, it hit product market fit really, really quickly. It was the first place you could ever borrow money on a mobile phone. You could borrow it instantly in just a matter of seconds. It put you on a path to improving your credit score. Uh, and over time, we just empirically demonstrated each of these things was was correct. Um, that's a small market. You know, I think it was $35 billion at the time. Uh, but then how did we apply that towards an even bigger market, the credit card market? Uh, which is where I spent some time at Citigroup. Um, and so we built Mission Lane. Um, and that became, and I think still is the fastest growing credit card company. Uh, it applies, you, you do it directly on a mobile phone. It was the first place you could ever turn a credit card on and off with your mobile phone. Now it's broadly available, but we were the first to bring that technology to market. And it had education built into it. I think it was just, again, took off. It's so much better on every aspect uh, of the product against anything else in the market because the technology enabled that to happen. Um, and then they tried, the, the manager team then after I left, uh, tried to open up one of the first savings account, micro savings accounts on a mobile phone um, as well called the head financials. So let's talk about optimizing for time because I mean, building two companies in parallel, how did you go about, you know, really surrounding yourself by the right people and then also enabling, you know, the, those teams to make sure that they were successful and, and you were not in, in, in the weeds, you know, so to speak. Yeah, it was one of the mistakes I think I made as a first-time entrepreneur is thinking I had to do everything myself. And then you start hiring incredibly smart, talented people, and you realize the product gets better faster, the product is able to scale faster, you're able to scale yourself faster. And then as a founder or a CEO, there's some things that are just unique that only that role can do. And so it allows you to have more time to do the things that are unique to a founder or CEO, whether it's continuing to hire or raise money or help manage the board, set strategy and alignment communication. And so I learned probably the hard way, uh, but hiring incredible people, there's nothing better at increasing your chances of success than hiring great people and then getting out of their way and letting them, letting them do their thing. So then in this case, you know, talking about also getting the right people, you know, um, let's talk about investments, uh, because for both companies, you raise money and and money is not just about the money, it's about the value that comes with the money. So how did you think about financing both companies? How was that fundraising journey? And you had to do it twice. So, I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. A lot of capital to sort of take on ambitious ideas. Uh, I think part of it is the preparation of it. Um, Fundraising is hard. You have to tell the story. Your finances have to align towards the story. The people in your team have to align to the story. And I view my job as the CEO ultimately as the arbiter of, of resources, of capital allocation and resource allocation across the company. And the two biggest resources that we have are our money and our, our team, our people. Um, over time, as you grow, your customers become a huge asset as well. But uh, how do you sort of manage and of all the time? So like I said, when you hire great people, it gives you time to do the things that you're uniquely suited to do as a founder, one of which is fundraising. And so the preparation time uh, all starts with a vision that is compelling. Uh, and so what's your take on the market that is compelling, is defensible, and is exciting and can, can energize people? So with the last two companies, it was how do you turn 
the concept of a predatory financial product into an opportunity to help people. That's just something that resonates. Everybody has had some struggle in their life. Everybody's needed a hand. And when our financial system was designed such that they make more money when their customers get further into trouble, it's easy to see a vision in which if you can demonstrate, you can make money and enable and empower people. It's a, it's a compelling vision. I think that attracts a lot of people uh, with domain expertise and a lot of people from outside the industry to bring fresh perspectives. Because how much did you raise in total for LendUp and how much did you raise in total for Mission Lane? I don't know the exact number, but it was in the hundreds of millions for each each company. Got it. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, based on, on what we can see online, you know, Mission Lane is around 675 million. I'm sure that there was like some debt, you know, versus equity ratio in there. And then LendUp about 361 million and probably the, the same, you know, with that, the debt versus equity uh, ratio. How do you think about debt versus equity ratio, you know, in an operation like that? How does that work? Yeah, I think if you're specifically doing a capital markets business, like a lending business, uh, the more that you can leverage debt, the better. And one of the advantages you have is when you can build outsized returns because your fraud and your credit underwriting is better, then you can attract more capital at a lower cost with a higher advance rate. Um, and so that just makes it much more capital efficient than otherwise. If you're building uh, a revenue financing business uh, or you're taking on debt as another startup, I think it's, as with all debt, you wanna really have confidence that in good times and bad, you're gonna have a means to pay it back um, because debt can wipe out all equity investors. It can wipe out all the returns for uh, founders and for employees. And so you really wanna make sure you have that. So I, I'm a big fan of some of the innovations in revenue financing that we're seeing these days, uh, slightly less so of just raising debt for debt state, uh, just to advance equity, uh, just because it can it can be dangerous, uh, especially when we're thinking about shareholder returns. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I gotta tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
I mean, I'm sure that during this time where you were raising efforts, you know, raising money, you know, with those capital raising efforts for both companies at the same time, you know, all those millions, I mean, that, that's a lot of money, you know, to raise. I guess, what would you say? And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening, you know, to us, you know, that are wondering, hey, you know, I, I wonder if I can, you know, get some insights here from Sasha. What, what are the top three lessons, you know, around fundraising that you've learned? Well, I think if we just first address the equity versus debt, I think when it's a very different mindset, which I, I learned after years and uh, or many, many pitches, by the way, the equity investors want to capture upside. They're making money because you're turning that equity into a multiple of that equity. The mindset of a debt investor is, I don't want to lose a penny. Uh, and so those are very different uh, messages and stories that you have to tell. I'm never going to lose your money. And here's how we structure a deal. So I'm never going to lose you money, or I'm going to make you a lot of money. And sometimes those things are aligned and sometimes those things are in conflict. Uh, and so I think from a debt versus equity, that, that's a big lesson. I think that the last, the, the, the thing that I still take to heart about fundraising is everything creates a compel. He has to all anchor towards a compelling vision. Uh, the first sentence that you say is the thing that is going to frame everything else from that point forward. So you really have to get that right. Um, and the the second is, you're the, the third, I guess, on this point is you want everything to align. Part of fundraising isn't about telling your whole story. It's about telling the parts that get people the most excited. And one of the things I am still prone to that I think almost every founder that I've talked to is, is they over-explain. They go into too much detail. And so get help early. Get that first sentence, get the story right, and then practice with friends. Practice in the mirror uh, to a point where you're not trying to tell everything. You're trying to tell the exciting part that gets people interested in all of those rich details. Now, uh, and, and I love that, by the way, I think that simplicity is everything. Less is more, eh? as they would say. I guess, I guess, you know, one thing that is very interesting here is that for both companies, I mean, you were for about six years. What do you think, you know, after you had built, you know, those two companies, you know, after all this success, what was the triggering point for you to say, hey, maybe there's something else for me to explore? And actually, you know, that perhaps, you know, that that push you to 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 get one year off. I mean, one year off, I'm sure that was pretty boring for you because, I mean, after running two companies, you know, I'm sure that you're, you were like used to the constant, you know, racing in your own head with the ideas, with what to do, with the fires to put out. I mean, wh why? Why did you like, uh, you know, turn chapter and take one year off? What what, what the hell, Sasha? <laughs> I, uh, I, we were working, we had the fortune of hitting product market fit really fast. And so I basically worked seven days a week for eight years in a row. Uh, and that was just exhausting. And I needed to take some time off. Uh, and so it was the perfect time for the businesses to be split into individual entities to be able to be capitalized separately for us to hire CEOs to run both of those businesses. And then afterwards, it just we needed to take some time to uh, decompress and figure out what to do next. Uh, I had quite a few interesting opportunities, but I also had two little kids uh, and they didn't know my name and I wanted them to know who their father was and spend time with them and decompress. And so uh, I, I took some time off. I, I thought it would be a couple months. It ended up being almost almost a year. So what what happened during that year? I mean, obviously, I'm sure that you had the opportunity of spending more time with the family, but, you know, how were you thinking about then 
entrepreneurship, building companies. You know, I'm sure that taking one year off and and you know taking a step back and and seeing what mattered. You know, obviously the family. What happened there? You know, what were you incubating? Because obviously, you know, as a result of that, you came back and and now now you're you're at it again with puzzle. But what was that incubation process of thinking? You know, what was going to be the next thing, and and why puzzle was the next thing? Yeah, I feel like building a company is is also somewhat traumatic. So maybe there's a little post traumatic stress disorder happening. It took me about three months to just relax, have a resting heart rate, uh, spent time. Uh, trying to learn some new skills. I read a lot. I didn't carry my phone with me anymore for three months, which was kind of crazy. I just left it at home. I spent one hour a day on my phone and the rest was just being really present, uh, exercising a lot, meditating, just decompressing. Then I started carrying around a little notebook, a, one that I wrote with uh, with pencil and paper and pen. Uh, and I just started writing down ideas, ideas that I thought were good for the world, ideas that I just, problems that I saw, and big ambitious ideas I thought that I was uniquely suited to tackle. And I just kept writing them down for a couple months. Um, after about the six month mark, um, I started talking with other founders and venture capitalists about ideas and started narrowing them down from 120 ideas, I think, to 20 ideas, to 10 ideas, to five ideas, to three ideas, to puzzle. So why puzzle out of the top three? I think the story is easier told in hindsight. I realized I'd been thinking about these. I had three ideas. One was fairly similar to the idea that I just stepped away from just applying it towards another industry. Um, another one I thought was sort of another missing idea in the market uh, that uh, I think would be still think would be great. But this idea I'd been thinking about for about a decade since my days at City Ventures. Um, and it came back from a lot of my experiences to date, which is when I combine the experience of being able to scale a company to hundreds of employees and millions of customers and raising hundreds of millions, and uh, how do you use those tools to enable something to exist that is different and um, more valuable in the world? The world of accounting just felt like kind of a natural fit. Again, we talked about I'm a math major. Accounting at its core is, is numbers. If we think about it as the numbers are the core truth of a business, and if we can understand the numbers, then we understand how our business works. And if we understand how our business works, we can make better decisions. So we combine a bit of math, uh, a bit of my history at Grameen, like helping company, like uh, basic entrepreneurs in the rural parts of developing countries understand how to build a business with loan and education together. And then this third step where I had the fortune of scaling a business. I had an incredible executive team, but I would look around my table and I could ask product and HR and people and engineering and our credit team and finance team. Everybody could open up their computer and answer any question that we asked them for the most part, except the finance team. It took them days to figure out how to calculate errors. It was all mostly done manually. And when you start looking at that and you start investigating, like what's happening here? We were hiring consultants and we were pulling engineers off of things and we were asking how confident people were in the answers. It turns out that that wasn't a failure of accounting teams. It's a failure of accounting software. And that was the part that sort of really kind of struck it. It was a bit of what am I good at? What was kind of a history of a fresh take because of my perspective? And what was a big, big market problem that needed addressing? Got it. Now. 
One thing that is very interesting here is that to just create the minimum viable product of something like this, it takes a lot of money. You know, I understand that it's 20 million bucks. So how, I mean, obviously you're a rock star, you know, at this point, you know, when it comes to, because I mean, any other like average Joe Schmo, you know, on the street, you know, that is like a first time founder, 20 million bucks to just get going with something, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like crazy. So, so I mean, they, I mean, the barrier to entry is like absolutely ridiculous. So, so why 20 million? And then how do you convince someone to just say, hand you that money to just put together an MVP? Yeah. Uh, that's the fun. That's why, uh, that's why these podcasts are so exciting because you get to hear a bit of the story behind the scenes that doesn't get published in other places usually because people don't ask this. Um, so I, uh, I think there's three themes that can lead up to something unique happening, um, in the world. So back, I guess, in my training as a venture capitalist, I was thinking about what are major trends that are happening in the industry right now? Big trends that we're going to create big winners and big losers. And there's four trends happening right now. In the, I believe in the world of accounting. One is gap is no longer sufficient for valuing a company. Uh, you listen to investor calls and they're not asking about traditional P&L and balance sheet metrics. They're asking about new customers and existing customers. And they're asking about new product lines. They're asking about growth. All of these things are not in the details of your financial, in the financial statement summary, they're in the details behind it. Second is Startups have style aligned towards a modern set of tools that all have APIs. Think the Stripe, Gusto, Ripplings, Brex, Ramp, Mercury's of the world. These modern tool set that all have data available in real time in an API. The profile of a CFO changed. Either the majority used to be come from the accounting background, and now the majority uh, of CFOs come from strategic finance or investment banking uh, or operational CFOs. And then fourth, the profile of a founder has changed. Uh, when a founder used to raise money, they used to raise a Series A and they would put a CEO and a CFO um, on, like, to run the company. But now there's capital for founders to grow and scale, which is great. But there's this really important missing knowledge, which is accounting and finance as a capacity. So we have these big macro trends that are happening. At the same time, this is a well understood problem. Uh, there's plenty of VCs have posted around the 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 lack of a modern accounting software to enable this next generation of companies. Um, why it doesn't exist was unique to the capital structure. So there's a lot of smart entrepreneurs who have tried this. There's a lot of um, understanding of different go-to-markets. There's a lot of opportunity. But when we look back at the history of what, what it took for any meaningful accounting software to be created, it was three to five years. And part of that is accounting is just binary. Similar to like going to the moon, 95% of the way to the moon doesn't really matter, or 95% of the way going to Mars doesn't matter. Accounting is the same thing. It's 100% or nothing. What that translates to is it takes specialized knowledge from accountants and auditors and tax experts and CFOs. It takes years to build for all of these different edge cases. And the combination of like very specific expertise and a lot of time means you need a lot of capital to incubate something like this. That means it's not part of the normal traditional venture capital route where, you know, maybe raise a couple million dollars from some angels or friends and family, and then you go raise a seed round, and then you raise a series A, series B. I knew that if I was going to do this for real, I couldn't get distracted by building a dashboard or building an insights tool or building a charting tool. I needed to have the core general ledger, which is the backbone of accounting. I needed to be able to focus on that. It was going to take a long time. And so I spent a couple months studying this. And what that meant was I needed $20 million, what I estimated to build it, validate it, show growth and traction, 
uh, in order to set up that next race. I actually think it takes about $50 million to build this for real. $20 million, like you said, is a big, it doesn't fit into a traditional venture capital structure. And um, so I, I looked for very large funds that do seed to scale. I looked for funds that had a history of incubating really big, ambitious ideas. And I looked for a partner that I thought would get it. At the exact same time, without my knowing, Hemant from General Catalyst was creating a creation fund, which they now talk about publicly at General Catalyst, big, ambitious ideas that don't fit in traditional capital structure. Hemant was an early investor in Stripe and Gusto. So he sort of really understood this next generation. He also has two main themes of his investing. It's like physical health, like human physical health and financial health. And I think this vision falls squarely in line with the, both of those two. So I went in and uh, I uh, had, a, had a meeting and we sat down in a conference room. We talked about what it sort of could look like. Uh, we then went and uh, he introduced me to a couple of his CFOs, portfolio CFOs. Uh, we went on and talked with a, a bunch of people. We validated the idea in the market. We talked about what it would take. And we both looked at each other and said, I think, I think this is it. I think, I think we can do this. Uh, and so we, we shook hands and uh, here we are. I love it. And now for the people that are listening to get it, you know, what ended up being the business model of Puzzle? How do you guys make money? Yeah. So I think there's, we think about this in sort of three phases uh, of um, the life cycle of a company. There is that entrepreneur who's just starting off their business. Um, and that has a free tier to it. It's the things that are the most important when you're first starting your company. You want to have a scalable system for tax compliance, for investor and shareholder reporting. But accounting in the early days is a little bit more of cash, burn, runway, and financial insights. What am I spending money on? What are the new things that I'm spending money on? What are the things that are changing? So our first tier is completely free for every brand new company. We want them to have a scalable uh, formation, a scalable system to, to grow their company. Phase two is uh, I've kind of now built a product and I want to be able to do a couple different things now. I need to understand the complexities of my business. I want to see revenue by customer. I want to see revenue by product. I want to see expenses by vendor. I want to see expenses by new or recurring. I want to see my runway. I need, I need to have full cash and accrual views because I want to save money on taxes. Uh, I need to fundraise, but I also want to understand my business and budget and forecast. There, it's a SaaS, uh, a monthly fee. It's completely uh, voluntary. The user opts in to a paid tier, and then they get unlocked a lot more capabilities and features. And then the third tier is I'm growing and scaling my business, and I want to have a lot of automation and collaboration and learning built into the system because now my accounting is getting complicated. I might have fixed assets, and I don't want to spend every single month writing a depreciation entry. I just want to like list my assets and have the software take care of it. Uh, I might have a bunch of revenue and uh, accrual automation. I want to see my cash and my accruals at the same time. And so I need to see all of these books, but I don't want to spend more time doing it. So we've built a system that learns and gets better all the time and automates a lot of the tedious parts of accounting. Uh, I mean, so that's, that's the third tier. Now, let me ask you this. Imagine... If I was to um, give you the opportunity of going to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the <laughs> vision of puzzle is fully realized, what does that world look like? I think that the part that I get the most excited about 
is when anybody, regardless of their background, can make confident decisions in their most important financial decisions. They have the data, they have the understanding, and they have the knowledge to be able to not guess, to not have to make a political discussion. They can actually understand the, for the most important financial decisions, they have confidence making those, they have confidence making those decisions. Um, so that's, that's a combination of UX, it's a combination of data, it's a combination of machine learning AI, and it's a combination of accounting and finance. I love that. Now, let's talk about the past with a, with a lens of reflection in there. So imagine you're able to go back in time and you're able to go back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment that uh, you had, you know, moved back to San Francisco. You were in those coffee shops, as you were saying, and you were able to see <laughs> the other founders pitching others and you were probably thinking, hey, I should be also one of them, right? And, and, <laughs> and imagine, you know, you were able to, uh, to have a chat with your younger self and be able to tell that younger Sasha, or give that younger Sasha one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I We touched on this a little bit before, but I feel like it makes sense to reiterate, is there's nothing in my opinion that will make a company more successful than proper capital allocation and hiring the best people ever. If, and so... Sometimes that's hard when you're scaling because you need more capital and you need more people. And so it's tempting to either lower your bar or potentially pick the wrong investors or hire the wrong people or just hire people fast enough. And so the lesson I would learn is, or lesson I would give back to my younger self is, have a good vision of what success looks like. Um, empower, your, hire the best people. If you don't know that they're gonna be a step function to your success, just don't don't hire them. Don't take the chance. It's better just to work harder um, because the wrong people can make just catastrophic decisions. When you hire the right people, you have to empower them to be successful. And that means that you need to have a common set of values of what does success look like? How do we behave as an organization? And sometimes you have to just let people make mistakes along the way. You have to trust them. And that's the hardest part. You got to bite the inside of your cheeks extra hard. Um, and my general advice that I give to people is, we will try 10 ideas. Eight of them are going to be terrible. One's going to be okay. And one is going to be that game changer. So let's get to that one as fast as possible. I love that. I love that, Sasha. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, if you're starting a brand new company, you should, of course, use Puzzle. And then um, I'm, there's a button that can connect with me right inside. But uh, it's Sasha at Puzzle.io. Uh, and uh, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, I'm everywhere. So I uh, would love to hear ideas, unfiltered feedback, and what else we can build for the founder community. Amazing. Well, hey, Sasha, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.